And they were written to them by Jesus from the pen of his best friend, John, to get their attention. We've seen in each of these letters how Jesus speaks to each of the churches specifically about their immediate circumstances and their immediate context in their unique cities. And he calls them to listen to him. Jesus wants to capture their attention. I think one could actually sum up the entire book of Revelation in a question, who has your attention? Sadly, some treat this book like a conspiracy theory. They grab all the things that are happening in the present and they plug them into the many symbols of the book to make fancy charts, to make predictions that determine how the end of the world is going to go down when the point of the book is to get our attention on the person of the resurrected King, Jesus Christ. The first five books of the whole book, excuse me, the first five words of this book say the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the one doing the revealing. He himself is the content of the revelation. And if we miss that, we've missed the purpose of not only these seven letters inside the book of Revelation, but the whole book itself. And so keep in mind that this document that we have in this collection of documents that we call the Bible is a revelation about the nature of reality. It's God's revelation, his uncovering, his unveiling about what the true nature of reality really is behind all that's happening on the earth and in the events of history. It's showing us what God has done in the world through his son. And just as God spoke about the day-to-day realities of these churches in this time of the Roman Empire in the past, at the turn of the calendar from B.C. to A.D., God is speaking to us now to get our attention to be transfixed on his son. And the problem is that just like the churches then, we have a attention deficit disorder. We get easily distracted away from what, or more importantly, who reality is about. Today, we live in an age of distraction. We live in an economy based on attention. One writer put it this way. In this new economy, capital, labor, information, and knowledge are all in plentiful supply. It's easy to start a business, to get access to customers and markets, to develop a strategy, to put up a website, to design ads and commercials. What's in short supply is human attention. Telecommunications bandwidth is not a problem, but human bandwidth is. What is it that makes the economy hum but is not growing? What's the limiting factor behind all those web pages, business plans, strategies, books, articles, marketing initiatives, partnerships, alliances, expansion initiatives? An attentive human mind. 
And even though that was written in 2001, before the advent of the iPhone, it's only proved true. With things like infinite scroll on Facebook and Instagram, streaming shows and movies that are made to never finish so that even when you finish what you're watching, something else immediately queues up. Push notifications, dings, vibrations on our phones, along with all the reward systems that are built into the apps to keep dopamine firing away in our brains and bodies. We basically live with a digital appendage crafted to capture our attention. And that's just how we live. That's just reality. That's the way that it is. And so now living at this point in history in an attention economy driven by technological breakthrough is not evil. It's actually a gift from God. The problem is, is that even as Christians, we can go about living our lives with our attention focused everywhere else, completely numb to the reality of God. Jesus can become just another accessory, another app, supplement to our lives instead of our life itself. And so though this ancient church of Laodicea that we are looking at today didn't have iPhones, didn't have smart TVs, we'll see that one of the great sins of this church in Laodicea was having their attention captured by the allurements of living in a prominent place, filled with the benefits of a prosperous economy and thriving commerce more than Jesus Christ. Instead of living as a burning lampstand, ablaze with their distinct identity being in Jesus, they assimilated and absorbed into the surrounding culture so much that they became unaware of whose they were as the people of God in Laodicea. And they were becoming simply self-sufficient, spiritually impoverished Laodiceans instead of the people of God in Laodicea. So, Laodicea, we learn something about them just by where they are situated geographically. Laodicea is here. Six miles to the north is Hierapolis. Six miles to the south is a place called Denizili. I probably butchered that. Ten miles this way is Colossus. A hundred miles that way, east. Well, whether that's east or not, it's a different story. But at least what I'm looking at, east. Laodicea here. Colossus here. Ephesus way down here, a hundred more miles. Remember, that's where we started in Ephesus. This is the end of a long trade route where this letter would have circulated. So they are here and they live in a waterless area. They cannot access water. Up above them is Hierapolis where there are hot springs with medicinal qualities. There's this cliff that the water flows over and makes all these fancy colors. To the south is this other town, Denizli, and again, I'm butchering it, but down there, there's hot springs too, and they actually have to pipe their water in from this town in the south. So as it goes through the pipes, it turns lukewarm, and sediment and other contaminations begin to take place in the piping, and their water is contaminated. Colossus, this way, was actually known for pure water. 
So they have hot springs to the north, piping in water from the south, pure water in the east, and then there's Laodicea, waterless with their lukewarm water. They're a town that is loyal to Rome. They're known for its wealth. Cicero, the famous Roman statesman, recommended its banks. They are a large banking financial city. All kinds of commerce. They're a central trade center on the made road from Rome. They are known for textiles. They have this black, soft wool that is uh, renowned. Cloth, carpets, clothes. They have a medicinal school connected to a temple that's focused on the god of healing, where they were actually known for a um, powder that was good for the eyes to help them be able to see. Like Humboldt County, it's earthquake country. And they had a massive one in AD 60 that pretty much decimated or at least destroyed a lot of the town. And like good Republicans, they didn't take the government money from Rome because they're good. They're rich. They can handle it all themselves. And they build all kinds of beautiful things from their own wealth. And they're syncretistic, meaning there's all kinds of local and Roman gods. Um, there's many people in Judaism that are there, many Jewish people that follow Judaism, all kinds of different gods. The city was actually named the city of Zeus. Diospolis would have been the name, which means city of Zeus before this other emperor or, or this other person came in and named it after his wife, Laodice. So that's this place that we're talking about. Again, we have to get in the actual place of Laodicea in the past as we read this fills in all kinds of interesting and convicting parallels. So I'm going to do A's today. A's. The first thing we're going to see in verse 14 is the attributes of Jesus for the church in Laodicea. So Revelation 3. 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus wants them to know this about him. He is the Amen. This is from Isaiah 65, which is actually a title for God, the God of truth. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it talks about the Amen as Jesus being the fulfiller of all the promises of God. The faithful and true witness. He, Jesus, is the faithful and true witness. In the book of John, again, this is written by John. In the gospel of John, Jesus is seen as utterly faithful to his father all the way through. Jesus just does the will of his father faithfully, truly. He is the beginning of God's creation. Now, sadly, this has been used for heresies that would say that Jesus somehow was created. That is not what it is saying. Jesus is the eternal, uncreated son of God. But this word for beginning is arche, which means that he's the first. And actually, for the Roman emperor, he was known primarily as a title that, again, I'm not going to butcher a word, but basically was the first. We call the Roman emperor the first among the citizens. And so here, Jesus is saying, I'm the first of all of creation, not just the Roman Empire. I am, earlier in Revelation, the firstborn from the dead. 
I am the one, the source of everything that has been made. And I am the ruler of all creation. And I have actually, by my death and resurrection, made a new creation that I am the ruler of. He is the king, the sovereign of all creation. Those are the attributes that they need to hear in Laodicea. Verse 15 and 16a. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold, excuse me, neither hot nor cold. And we'll stop. With those first two. This is Jesus's analysis of the Christians in the Laodicea. I know your works. Remember, I'm in the midst of you. I dwell among the lampstands, among the churches. I am with the churches. I'm supposed to be the center. I see everything. I know what you're doing. And I have this about you. I'm speaking directly to who you are and to your circumstances. Your works show that you are spiritually impoverished. It shows that you're just like the town. You're waterless and you have to pipe in water and it's lukewarm. It is contaminated. Instead of being a witness to your city, you mimic your city. You have taken on the temperature of your environment. And then in 16b, I will spit you out of my mouth. So his analysis leads to the effect that this analysis has on Jesus, the effect of lukewarm Christianity. I will spit you out of my mouth. This is actually a softening of language by the translator. Sometimes people who translate the Bible soften it. It's actually kind of a vulgar term that is vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. If you read the NASB, you see a footnote there that says that. The message Eugene Peterson's paraphrase actually gets it right. You make me want to vomit. So the response is visceral. It's forceful. Jesus is saying the things that you do, who you are becoming makes me nauseous. So it's sobering. In verse 17, he begins to say, why? Verse 17 shows us the anesthetization of lukewarm Christianity. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus saying, you know what you say about yourself? These three eyes. Kind of the evil trinity of self-sufficiency. I am rich. I prospered. I don't need anything. I'm good. It actually harkens back to a prophet in Hosea. The prophet Hosea. 12, 1, 7, and 8, very similar language. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, right? Is that how it goes? 
speaking of Ephraim, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Verse seven, a merchant, again, this symbol of commerce, a merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I found wealth for myself and all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I'm rich. There's no sin in me. I'm I'm good. I got it covered. So they say all these things about them. This is their identity. Identity. And then what does he say? Not realizing. Lukewarm Christians don't realize it. They're unaware of it. Not realizing that actually you say you're this. It's like your your Instagram portrays this about you. But it's wrong. There's actually something else completely about you that's different. You're actually these things. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And I'm just struck by the unawareness of it. Another translation said, though you do not realize it. Reminds me of Matthew 24 when Jesus was talking and the prophecies that he was giving. And listen to the way that he describes these people that he's speaking to in Matthew 24, 38 and 39. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So there's a kind of unawareness that can seep in. Webster's Dictionary says this about the word anesthetize. Having lost sensation to the pain due to the effects of an anesthetic. You don't realize it. All these things that you have have completely numbed you to reality to the true reality about you. Your attention is elsewhere. It's on giving in marriage. It's on banking. It's on commerce. It's on trade. It's on normal life. Again, not that any of those things are bad, evil in and of themselves, but they have begun to just capture their hearts and their attention is totally on that. And that's what worldliness begins to be. It isn't so much drinking, smoking, movies, this or that. Where is your attention? Where is your heart? What are you captured by? Or do you just live unaware, desensitized to the reality of God? And so they're saying those things. And Jesus says, you don't realize this is actually who you are. You're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. And so in verse 18, Jesus gives them advice. Jesus's advice to lukewarm Christians, I counsel you. Listen to me. I hear what you're saying now. Now, let me give you some advice. And this is when he actually begins to bring in things that we just spoke of earlier of what is happening in their culture. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may. See. So these three 
parallels that he gives actually parallel three of the last adjectives in the verse before, and it pulls directly from their culture. This poor, blind, and naked. In this first part of verse 18, to buy from me gold. So it's like you, you have all the wealth. You have all the banking. You're the banking center of the area that the great Cicero speaks of. But that's not where wealth is found. Jesus says, come buy gold from me. Gold refined. And this refining gives all kinds of other imagery in the word of God that speaks of refining as refined through maybe suffering, refined through persecution, refined through the process of repenting and being clean and pure. You need the true gold. You don't actually have the gold. You're not actually rich. I say, buy from me. Come to me for that. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Again, what are they known for? Textiles, this black, interesting parallel, this black soft wool. They're fancy. They got all their garb. They're trendy. They're good to go. And he's saying, no, you know what? Actually, you're naked. You need white clothes, not the black wool of the culture. You need the purity that comes from me so that you can actually be clothed with white garments and so that the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Again, this is intense language that he's speaking of. We know nakedness in the Bible from the very beginning of Genesis refers to shame. And that you actually are experiencing shame. And in Ezekiel, even more intense, a picture of spiritual adultery. And there's wild phrases like lifting their nakedness, spiritual adultery, prostitution, that shame brings the judgment of God. And if you look at Ezekiel 16, which I'm not going to read, you will see that. So if you come to me, if you buy from me, if you get your white garments from me, you're going to be clean. Your shame is going to be covered. You won't have to be ashamed anymore. And solve to anoint your eyes, the last part of verse 18, so that you may see. Again, they're known for this Phrygian powder. That's P-H-Y-R-I-G-I-A-N. That would have been known at that time that they had. That would bring healing to the eyes. So they got that. They can see. They're fine. No, they're not. Come to me so that you can see. I will anoint your eyes, anointing the picture of the Spirit. I will remove the blindness, and you will actually see. And this image of buying from me is wonderful. It comes from Isaiah. We think like, oh, so I got to go gather my resources and go buy stuff. No, what does Isaiah say? Come to me, all who thirst. Come to the waters and drink. Buy from me without cost. That Jesus is actually offering himself. No, it all comes from me. You actually, what you bring to me, what you buy from me, isn't you're giving me something. It's you come to me without cost and I'll give you everything.
So verse 19, Jesus's affection for lukewarm Christians. I find this interesting because we have this tension, all these dead serious things that he's saying to them. There's nothing positive that Jesus has to say to this church. Except that in this verse, he does say, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those whom I love. I love you so much, I'll tell you what's true about you. The evidence of my love for you is that I'm going to bring the reproof. I'm going to bring the evidence of what you've done, the sin that you have committed, and I am going to say it to you and tell you. Open rebuke is better than hidden love, the Proverbs say, and Jesus will do that. He will reprove them. He'll say, actually, this is me showing that I love you. So he says, I reprove, excuse me, those who I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I'm doing this because I love you so zealously, as one person put it, to kind of combine these words, zealously repent. Don't just get zealous about the world. Zealously repent and turn to me. And that that's how he loves them. Since my affection, my heart is for you, give your heart to me. There's a sense of it's not too late. Verse 20, Jesus' attention to lukewarm Christians. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The attention that he gives them. Behold, look, look at me. I am standing at the door and knocking. This isn't primarily an evangelistic text. This isn't to people that are not in the church. This is to the church. I'm standing there. I am knocking. This is what I want to call the Jesus notification. We all get notifications on our phone. Well, maybe most of us all do. It depends. Hopefully you've shut a lot of them off. But Jesus notification. Here I am. I'm knocking. Can you hear me? Is your attention anywhere about me? I am knocking. I'm standing here saying, I want to come in. I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to fellowship with you. The Jesus notification. Are you too distracted? Are you listening? Are you attentive to him? He is attentive to you. He wants to come in. Hey, I'm here. Knock, knock. Ding, ding. Vibrate, vibrate. Here I am. And this, too, alludes to Song of Solomon in chapter 5, verse 2. And you have the lovers of knocking come. She gets up and he's not there. Jesus is here knocking and he's going to come in to be with us. So are we listening? His attention is on us, is our attention on him. Verse 21, Jesus gifts the conquering shared royal authority 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Amazing stuff. Jesus sits on the father's throne. Jesus is God. And Jesus says, I'm going to share this throne with you. If you conquer, this isn't so much about persecution and all that, like we've seen in the other ones. This theme of conquering is all through the book of Revelation. But Laodicea, if you conquer, if you get your attention off of yourselves, your self-sufficiency, your own impoverishment, you're just being completely absorbed by the culture. If you conquer that and turn to me and repent and let me in, have fellowship with me, you're going to get everything. You live like kings right now. You want to actually be a king? Conquer. How? I think this is Jesus's Beatitudes. The poor and the spirit get the kingdom of heaven. How? Have an impoverishment of spirit, a lack of resources in yourself and a complete identification in the person of Jesus Christ by trusting him. That's how you conquer. And you get the throne of Jesus, which is the throne of God. New heavens and new earth. And even partially now as kings and priests of God. So he says in the last verse, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Again, be spiritually attentive. Are you spiritually attentive to what Jesus is saying to Laodicea then and to what he's saying to you right now? He's calling. He is knocking. He is welcoming. And he loves his people, even the lukewarm ones. And he warns them seriously. But he says, come, buy from me, drink and eat. And that's what we're going to do with communion. We're going to drink and eat and fellowship with him. There's a sense of the Eucharist. You probably heard that term that some churches use. Just means Thanksgiving. What did Jesus do? He gave thanks. We're getting ready for Thanksgiving. What's one antidote potentially to lukewarmness? To really be thankful to God for all the wonderful gifts he's given. And not just to love the gifts, but to look and trust him. Let's come together and do communion after we, after we sing.